Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Legend speaks of a beast, 300 miles from its tip to its tail. None have seen it, yet all know its name, like the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail. I'm Ian Woodworth, I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are talking about the big things that hide in the sea. Yes, the depths of the ocean, the monsters from the black. Yeah, we're talking about sea monsters. Yeah. This is a continuation of our recent series, I suppose it would be, where we're talking about monsters that appear in mythology and how they have been translated into TTRPGs, specifically into D&D, because that's the books we have. Right. And yeah, today we're going to be talking about stuff like the Hydra and the Leviathan and the Kraken. It was really hard not to go with release the Kraken for the quote, but I did like that Leviathan quote. It kind of had a good feel to it. You are not Liam Neeson. No, I am not. <laughs> so, anyway, if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, feel free to send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew for however long the burning husk of Twitter remains. <laughs> you can also find us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Search under common taste. We're also on Mastodon under common taste at dice.camp. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where our write-ups go. We're still working on getting more content up there. Hopefully here pretty soon we'll be able to start our patron-only episodes. Yes. So if you have anything that you would like us to talk about that's a little bit more amorphous and a little bit less of a, you know, TTRPG-exclusive topic, send us an email and we'll do a patron-only episode on it. Yeah, that'd be great. We're also on Itch. We have an Itch store under commentaste.itch.io. That's where we have our liminal horror adventure beneath the lake and my solo RPG Forever Home. And finally, we are on Discord. You can find a link to our Discord in the show notes if you ever wanted to just come and talk with us directly. Yeah, that sounds great. Again, you can find our podcast wherever you find your podcast. We're pretty much on all the podcasters now. As always, subscribe, give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility. It lets us know what kind of content you want to hear more of. All right, so let's get started on this adventure. Yes. I think the monster that really inspired us to really start this episode was the Hydra. Yes, it was. Specifically the Lunaean Hydra from the... Twelve Labors of Hercules. Right. Or Heracles. Or Heracles. If, if you're, you're more Greek-leaning than Roman. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those things. I do prefer Heracles. That is my little bit of a soapbox. Though I do use both terms interchangeably. But yeah, so the Hydra is kind of an interesting creature. It's definitely more popular, especially with uh, the last set of, you know, Marvel movies that came out. And we will not use the very well-known refrain because there are some issues with it. We will... Leave that. If you want to hear a Patreon exclusive on that one, we can discuss it. There is a little bit of wonkiness with that. But the Hydra itself is, you know, this mystical creature. As we all know, if you cut one head off, two would grow from the stump. A creature born of monsters itself was the son of Typhus and Echidna, who was kind of related. If you look at her, she lived in a cave, but she had the upper half of a, a female. Her lower half was snake. And as we talked about in our previous episodes with our sirens and our mermaids, those sirens started taking more of those. Instead of being bird body, they started becoming more draconic and more scaly. And Echidna uh, kind of had a big portion to do with that right. as well. Right, and the monster that is most similar to Echidna would probably be the Lamia. 
Orinaga. Orinaga, depending on culture, yeah. Yeah. So the upper half of a human, typically female, and then the lower half of a serpent. Yes. So again, the Hydra was largely... I mean, if you had to describe it, think of Nessie with multiple heads. Um, Again, had a bestial body, but was not described as hairy. So I kind of see something that could go immerse into water or land. So it generally would have like a smoother skin. That also depended on which story you're drawing it from. This is true. Because there are some stories that simply describe it as being a multi-headed serpent. Right. Which suggests that it doesn't have any legs at all. It's just a big old snake with a whole bunch of heads heads. on it. This is also a possibility. Again, the Hydra, while very well known, has a very short stand-in in the Twelve Labors of Heracles or Hercules. So the definitions and the story of it is a little muddled. And strangely enough, unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of detail. Again, Heracles employs his nephew to help him with this one, because if you cut a head off, two heads would grow from the stump. So in order to defeat the Hydra, Heracles had his nephew carterize each of the stumps after he cut off a head to prevent further growing. And this left the one immortal head, which after it was severed, Heracles buried it under a rock. Because like, you can't kill something immortal, but if it's stuck under a rock forever, it's not going to cause anyone any trouble. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. See, so yeah, the Hydra has definitely been one of those monsters that has a lot of lore surrounding it being brought into modern culture. Yes, absolutely. Oh. A lot of games, a lot of fantasy-themed games have a Hydra or something akin to a Hydra in them. It's very popular in JRPGs. Very much so. I mean, speaking of JRPGs, there is a Japanese monster that is very similar to the Hydra, the Orochi, which is, I think it's supposed to be a sea-based monster that has eight heads and eight tails. Eight being a very popular number in Eastern numerology. Correct. Well, it's actually a fairly popular number in Western numerology as well. Yeah. So one of these stories describing the Orochi in Japanese Shinto mythology says, It had an eight-forked head and an eight-forked tail. Its eyes were red like the winter cherry, and on its back, firs and cypress were growing. As it crawled, it extended over a space of eight hills and eight valleys. So it was diminutive. It was tiny, right? (laughs) It was a wee bitty thing, yeah. They were all bonsais. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, yes, this is one of the original kaiju. Right, exactly, yeah. It's a massive sort of creature, and it ended up being slain by a god who was kicked out of the heavens for tricking his sister, Amaratesu, the sun goddess. Did he kill out a spider? Was he bored, or... Was he Um, trying to redeem himself? There was a mortal who had petitioned him for aid because every eight years they had to sacrifice one of their daughters to the Orochi. Okay. And this was his eighth daughter. And so he didn't want to give her up. And so Susanoo, who was the Japanese god who got kicked out of heaven, ended up going and killing the Orochi to save... Oh, he's doing someone a good. I like it. You know, it wasn't self-serving, at least not apparently. So that's kind of cool. Okay, I like it. And another little detail is that apparently the Imperial Regalia of Japan, which would be the sword, the mirror, and the jewel, all came from the Orochi. So this is totally like your treasure drop-off after you kill the, the gargantuan creature. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. And these are items that are kept away from public eye that are the symbols of divine authority for the Japanese emperor. And so... Much like the crown jewels in Britain. 
Except that, you know, the crown jewels in Britain are on display right. in the Tower of London. Yeah, on display. Those are all fakes. We know yeah, it. Those are probably, you know, reproductions, yes. But the fact of the matter is that they are physical items that are present, that you can see, that you can... Somewhat interact with? Yeah, <laughs> somewhat. Kind of. But these are artifacts that make public appearances. Right. The regalia of Japan never made public appearances. So whether or not they actually, actually exist. physically <laughs> exist, I mean, there may very well be a physical sword, mirror, and gem. Right. Whether that is the actual origin of them, it's just the mythology behind them. Right. Who knows? I'm not a scholar on Japanese culture. Nor am I. But, I mean, I'll run with it. I've heard stranger stories from Western culture. So, yeah, we'll go with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, the Hydra, like I said, has this fairly simple thing. The Hydra did have a couple other, you know, kind of nasty tricks up its sleeve within mythology. One, any of its multitude of heads, generally nine, unless you started cutting some off and then it grew more, could spray either a poisonous gas or a venom. And its very blood was also poisonous. So, I... Don't quite get the full xenomorph feel with the acid blood, but it was something along those lines that if you got spattered with its blood and it either got into a wound or into your face or mouth, that could be an issue for you as well. Well, I mean, the blood of the Hydra was the thing that ultimately led to the death of Heracles. Yes. Because, you know, he killed the centaur Nessus with a poisoned arrow. Right. And in the end, Nessus's hide was fashioned into a shirt that the inside of it was also smeared with the blood of the Hydra. And so whenever Heracles put it on, the blood of the Hydra came into contact with his skin and it created this perpetual sense of burning. Yes. Because he was a demigod, he was also technically immortal. He could not be slain by this. Or I guess he was invulnerable. He yeah. wasn't immortal. He had a resistance, as we would say in yeah. D&D. Um, so... <laughs> It couldn't kill him, but it made him very, very uncomfortable. Yes. Uh, and so he ended up, you know, throwing himself upon his own funeral pyre. Right. And that was how he died and ended up being ascended into Mount Olympus. Correct. So, yes, it was really unpleasant stuff. So now we know that Heracles did have a poison resistance, but no resistance to fire. That is, <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> So if you want to throw Heracles on your table as either an NPC or a BBEG, there you go. We've started a stat Heracles. I'm going to say he probably had a 20 to 22 strength score. Just throwing that one out. (laughs) Minimum, yeah. Yeah. We might stat out Heracles later just for lulz. (laughs) So going into D&D, talking about the Hydra. The 5E Hydra is kind of a pale specter of what the Hydra used Used to to be. be. This is true. That's not to say that it isn't an impressive monster. No. So, by default, the D&D Hydra in 5th edition has five heads. Yes. If it takes 25 points of damage in a round, it loses a head. If you don't kill it before its turn starts up again, it grows two heads where it had one, and it regains 10 hit points per head it regrows. Right. I do know, again, if you want to go back to our last anniversary celebration episode we had the trask task morning trask yes um we did have a hydra in that one so if you want to go and hear the actual play we did we do have a hydra encounter in that yes and that was definitely a discretion is the better part of valor yes it was encounter and we're like yeah we're not gonna stand we, we were hurting as a party by that point we were not up for a stand-up fight yeah that was an acid-based yes 
Hydra, and it was kind of nasty. The other major feature of a Hydra and what makes it an especially dangerous foe is that it gets one reaction per head it has to make attacks of opportunity. Right. So a five-headed Hydra can make five attack of opportunity reactions. Yes. If it has more heads, it can make more. So it is a very dangerous adversary in that regard. Right. This is a monster that if your party is facing it, your party does need to coordinate to drop it as fast as possible. Because if you don't, it will grow enough heads just to be over to simply overwhelm your party. Yes. In Mythic Odysseys of Theros, they did revamp the Hydra a little bit in the form of the Iron Scale Hydra. Ooh. Basically, they took the Hydra, they beefed it up a little bit, they made its blood acidic. So, okay, we're going we're going the Xenomorph direction with this one. Well, I mean, they went a little bit more towards the historical Lernaean Hydra. Yeah. Which, you know... A contact honestly, poison, yeah. Honestly, yeah. it You know, poison to acid, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. Right. Well, in, I mean, at the end of the day, unless the poison, like now again in older editions of D anD D, your poisons were actually stat poisons, and so they would actually diminish your stats versus your HP. So, yeah. like your poisons would give you a negative one d four to strength or to intel or to constitution, and if your strength or constitution dropped to zero, you just died. Absolutely, yeah. And then these iron scale hydras require more damage in order to chop off a head, and they recover more health. Whenever they regrow heads. Okay. So it it takes 40 hit points to chop off a head, and then they regain 20 hit points per head regrown. Oh. So, yes, they are bigger and meaner. Yeah. And then there was a named variant that was even bigger and badder than the standard Iron Scale Hydra called uh, Polychronos. So basically, now you have a Hydra that has the acid blood and the takes more damage to chop off a head and recovers more health whenever it regrows heads. But it also now has a tail attack and legendary actions. Oh my. I'm just going to cast Meteor Swarm and run. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. That's fair. Give it a good distraction. Smack it once or twice so I can say I did something. And then I'm out. Bye. <laughs> just out. No. Yeah. Now in 2nd edition, which was the other end of where I went with my research on the Hydra. The Hydra was a much more dangerous... The Hydra's just going to kill you dead. The Hydra is TPK. <laughs> so for starters... The body of the Hydra is immune to attacks. It's immune to damage. Okay. The only way to kill a Hydra by attacking the body without attacking the heads was to deal enough damage in a single blow to deal damage equal to its maximum HP. Meteor Swarm. And the maximum HP of a Hydra in 2nd edition was 8 points per head it started with. Okay. And it would start with 1d8 plus 4 heads. So from 5 to 12. Oh my. Meteor Swarm might not do it. (laughs) Well, I mean, Meteor Swarm is a ninth level spell, and I don't even know if it even existed in... Second edition, yeah. Second edition. But yeah, so it's Thaco and its damage were also based on the number of heads it had. Interesting. And if you removed heads, it didn't reduce... The Thaco or damage. Oh. So, like, if you had a 12-headed... Hydra? Hydra, it would have a Thaco of 9, and it would have a D10 damage die. Okay. Per head. Oh. Oh, my. Yeah, the, yeah, the Hydras were so going to wreck As, as opposed to the 5-headed one, which had a Thaco of 15 and a D6 damage die. Right. Now, Thaco is, again, if for 
our listeners that haven't played older editions, it works like armor class, but backwards, basically. So Thacko means to hit armor class zero, and that was the highest armor class you could hit. So basically, a Thacko of nine, you'd have to roll a 10 or higher, I believe, if that was. I know you had hit a nine or higher. I think. A nine Ty- or higher, yeah. Yeah, Ty goes to the attacker. I Ty goes to the attacker. And then you could have your armor class that could also beef that up. But lower numbers was a more resistant creature. So again, rolling lower against a Thacko was better than rolling higher. Kind of like what Call of Cthulhu dice rolls are, are more like today. Except that this was in a D20 system and not a D100 system. Correct, yeah. yeah. Thacko gets a little confusing. Once you handle it for a bit, you can get used to it. It's just that initial shift from low to high is can trip a lot of people up. Yeah, that's why they had Thacko tables. Yes. So you could just look at the table and see what the number you were looking for was. Right. And if you rolled that number or higher, you hit. Right. I think, I mean, this is completely a rabbit trail, but if you want to see a good conversion of like a Thacko table to something more modern, if you listen to Tales of the Manticore, which is a great podcast I highly recommend you listen to, he rolls that reversed Thacko through season one. And then as he moves to season two, he actually flips that to a more of a modern dice roll just to clarify because listeners were getting confused because again, it was an older system where things were a little backwards. Yeah. All right. So there were several variants in second edition that carried through into third edition. I haven't found many of them in fifth edition. Uh, They might be in some book somewhere that I just haven't found yet, but there was actually one of the variants in 2nd edition called the Lernaean Hydra. Okay. The Lernaean Hydra was different from the bog standard Hydra in that it was the one that could regrow its heads. Fair enough. The standard Hydra did not regrow heads. Interesting. In 2nd edition. I was not aware of that bit. And there was also the Cryohydra and the Pyrohydra. The Flame Hydra, yeah. Which are able to breathe cold breath and breathe fire breath respectively right and again you see these become very popular spells in the old diablo diablo 2 where you could actually create your own flame hydra and it'd pop up and you had a, a flame hydra that would spit fire for you and that was yes. always a good crowd control spell to drop but keep the beasties away yep and so the Lernaean hydra could regrow more heads than it started with But it also maxed out at 12 heads. Okay, that's Um, fair. Otherwise, yeah. That way they didn't have to expand the table that they (laughs) created already for the Hydra. Right. So kind of like in games and a lot of things where the oozes would continually divide. So you kill the creature and now, oh no, you have two. This was very much the feel of the Hydra. And as found with a lot of older, you know, video games and even some tabletop games, that splitting of enemies, even if they were weaker when they split overall, could very easily overwhelm a party and an entire game system. And so I can understand why wizards would cap at a certain number. Well, this was a TSR. Oh, was it thing. TSR at that point? second edition. Yeah, okay. Yeah, second edition was TSR. Oh. But I could see why they would cap at a certain yeah. number because you could easily break the entire game with just one Hydra and be like, okay, now what? <laughs> yeah, because action economy is not a fifth edition creation. No. <laughs> it becomes more important in fifth edition because of bounded accuracy. But action economy is not a fifth edition creation. You know, you're always going to be at a disadvantage if you are outnumbered you know, two to one, three to one, five to one, just because they get more attacks on you, which means that they have more chances to deal a critical hit. Right. Yeah, no. Whoever's throwing more dice is going to do better. Almost always. Another variant that was present in an older edition, this was one that 
I think Ed Greenwood came up with in an early, early uh, Dragon Magazine article, possibly some other resource called the Dwerga Hydra. Ooh. Dwerga Hydras were smaller than your standard Hydra. They were a medium-sized creature, and they lived underground. Specifically, like, in the Underdark. Because the Underdark is not scary enough. Let's throw a Hydra in there. By default, they only had two heads. Not terrible. They would keep one head sort of wrapped back around their body, almost like a hump or, like, you know, folded back wings. Okay. And they would use it basically as a surprise tactic. Oh, they were very agile and capable of climbing very easily. So they would be able to like scale walls and run across the ceilings and all of the things that weird lizard creatures do. But he was not actually left-handed. But he was not actually left-handed. And unlike most other hydras that had a purely bestial intelligence, they had an innate knowledge that if they lost a head, they would regrow heads. Okay. And so they would use their head as bait to lure out things. Interesting. And so particularly aggressive Dwerga Hydras would end up having like six, seven, eight heads. But unlike the other Hydras, because they were a much smaller frame, as they grew more heads, they would become more sluggish. And they would have a harder time moving and they wouldn't be able to climb as well. And eventually they would be relegated to just crawling. Okay. And they would ultimately starve to death. This makes sense. This kind of reminds me of the old Order of the Stick comic, which was an old D&D comic that you still find online. But their solution to defeating the Hydra was to cut off so many heads that the Hydra basically passes out because there's not enough blood flow to keep all the brains active and awake. So it passes out. Yeah. Which is kind of um, a funny way to do it. But Order of the Stick was a, a fun little comic to read. And so canonically, the Dwerga Hydras are extinct in the Forgotten Realms. They have been hunted to extinction. Okay. They were initially... Hunted and harvested by the Illithid and the Drow because their blood could be used as a very potent component in healing potions and regeneration potions. Understandable. Ultimately, humans found out about them. And, uh, there they, we go. Sustainable harvesting, boys and girls, is a thing. No, no, wait. <laughs> there was no sustainable harvesting in this. They initially tried to domesticate them. Oh, to use them as either mounts okay. or subterranean guardians. Okay. And once they figured out that they could not be trained, that they were far too aggressive for that. And then by that point that they could not be kept away from human settlements, they were kill on sight. Oh, oh my. And so they were eventually eradicated by humans. All those healing potions gone. That's a pity. But yeah, so that's Hydras. Yeah, the Hydras. And again, the Hydras, they do round out. If you're going to play a Hydra, with the exception of this Dwerga Hydra, which is relatively new to me, they are going to be bestial. So they are going to attack the biggest, scariest, or most threatening thing on the table. There's not going to be a whole lot in the way of strategy with these things. They are just going to kind of attack until they realize maybe... I mean, they will take damage. They may flee. Survivability is a thing. Self-preservation is a thing. That said, these are definitely apex predators in their own right, so there's not much that's going to be able to scare them away or drive them off. Right, and they all typically have, as part of their mechanics bundle, as long as they have more than one head, they have advantage on anything that is going to affect perception. So they have advantage on saving throws against being blinded or charmed or deafened or frightened or knocked unconscious or any of those sorts of status effects. 
And they're also, if the monster is asleep, there's always at least one head awake. Right. So you can't just sneak up on it because it's asleep. It will still be able to perceive you. If more than one head is awake, it's going to have advantage on all of its perception checks. Absolutely. So anything for vision or for hearing or for smell, it's going to have an advantage on any of those sorts of things. I'm trying to figure out what the Hydra CR is. Uh, I think it's a CR 8 or 9 because the... Uh, Armor class 15, hit points 172. Because the Iron Scale Hydra is a CR 11. Okay, yeah, so this Hydra here, pulling up from D&D Beyond, this thing has a CR 8. It's not something you're going to run into as a level 2, 3, 4 player. Even a group, one Hydra against a group of 5th levels is probably going to be a good challenge and will wipe out most of their abilities for the day until their next long rest. So again, these things are not lightweights by any regard. No, especially since they get one attack per head every single round. Right. So, you know, you're coming in, your fighter and your paladin and your barbarian, they all decide, oh, we're going to go and gang up on this Hydra. And then it has five, maybe six heads. Right. That means it gets five, maybe six attacks. <laughs> and these are not small attacks. These are, I think, average damage of 19 a hit. I believe so. Here, let me double check. Yeah, so it has a multi-attack with a plus eight. And uh, yeah, the average hit is 10. It's a 1d10 plus five. Okay, d10 plus five. So average of 10 damage a hit. That's, at the beginning of the fight, 50, 60 damage around. Yeah, that's throwing out some damage. Plus, it gets that reaction attack of opportunity, so it can potentially double that. Right. So, yeah, it's not anything to be, you know, trifled with. Exactly. And again, also keeping with our theme here that this is a sea or an aquatic monster, you're going to find these things. I mean, you can find them in the woods and stuff. Most likely, you're going to find them either along the shorelines or even like in a deep lake. I said something like along the lines of Nessie, in which case you're going to come up to it and you might only see a single head at a given point and thinking, hey, here's this, while the other heads are held underwater or in bay. So these other heads are going to pop up as a surprise and be like, ha ha. <laughs> but again, this is the type of biome you're going to find these things too. Again, lakes, shorelines, deep rivers. Again, this might be like on your high-end table of random encounters, something that you don't necessarily want your party to fight. This is most likely going to be a questing beast. This is going to be something you have to slay for a town or a settlement for your party to earn a favor of significance. This isn't something that you drop and kill easily. And going back to what I mentioned last time, Time whenever we're talking about chimeras, this could be something that a low-level party comes across, realizes they're out of their depth, and leaves. And then several levels later, realize that they need something from a hydra as a spell component or as a an item creation component. And they're like, hey, remember that time? Right. And again, diving back into myth and with uh, the Dwargar Hydra, again, maybe you need the blood either for specific poison or spell component and this would be a great way because again hydro blood's not something you're going to buy in your general goods store and it also mentioned in this article that yes they have been hunted to extinction in the wild it is possible that some wizard found one and has it in magical stasis or found some eggs and has the eggs in magical stasis in their research facility and so it may not be 
entirely extinct. Right. And I was just gonna, extinct in the wild. The Underdark is not fully explored either. I'm no. just putting that out there. And is there true. is a lot of crazy wizards that do some crazy stuff in the Underdark. Or if you listen to our last episode, you know, maybe in an otherworld plane and something as terrible as the Howler Wasp, which is still kind of bothering me a little bit, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, again, this kind of rounds out the Hydra. This isn't something that is going to pop up frequently. I believe the Hydra did make a quick mention at the end of Stranger Things Season 1. I do not know if it played through in Season 2. I never actually got to complete Season 2. I don't rightly recall. Right. But I do know the Hydra made an appearance at the end of Season 1. So you have to think, their party faced a Demigorgon before they faced the Hydra. Just to kind of put that on perspective or scale moving on our next creature of the deep i think we actually do need to address the kraken the Um, kraken kraken please and so the kraken is this giant sea creature it's the destroyer of ships and trade lanes it has an appearance in clash of the titans the old 80s movies which shouldn't be there that's a little weird but meh yeah because it is a scandinavian monster it is norwegian in origin yeah i have no idea where they drug out yeah what it's doing in Clash of the Titans, I'll never know. Yeah, that was a weird... But hey, why not? Because releasing the Kraken, that's one of the best movie lines ever. Just wonderfully done. The Kraken is this great cephalopod, be it squid or octopus, we don't know. The creature in Dead Man's Tale, a Pirates of the Caribbean with Johnny Depp. You know, that giant octopus, that the breaker of ships, you know, and pulling things down. This was the Kraken. So going through, again, it's Norwegian. It's actually fairly recent as far as our mythological creatures going. The first written accounts being in the early 1800s. Again, the big time of... Actually, this is even post-slave trade with Europe. So, I mean, really, this is a relatively recent critter. Yeah, this is post-Golden Age of Sail. Yeah, this would definitely be within the whaling time, though. And so, depending on what they were looking for, especially as the sperm whale was such a... Was a large whale that had a very high oil content. They were known to eat the colossal squid, so... Ian has a historical description of what this thing was, and from the sound of it, I'm guessing it was the corpse of probably a colossal squid. Yeah, there was, I believe, 1813 is the account that they just described coming up to this massive sea creature that was 60 meters long. So that's 200 feet in freedom units. Um, (laughs) And it was covered in birds. So that to me says that maybe this was like, you know, a Humboldt squid or one of these colossal squids that had died and had floated to the surface. And so the birds were coming along and scavenging the carcass. So again, these kraken, if you're going to find them, you're not really going to find them so much on the shores, though you could possibly bring this up for a kraken attack to harass the town. These are, if you're going to be running a seafaring campaign, this is definitely going to be one of your big terrors. And much like the hydra, you are not going to attack the body of the kraken. Rather, you're going to attack one of the eight tentacles that is going to be grappling party members or trying to destroy your ship or breaking it down to either wound it enough to sever, kill, or otherwise hinder one of these tentacles. To outright kill a kraken would be extremely difficult, if not near impossible. I actually use a kraken as the big bad for a campaign that I was running that has since fizzled out, but that started as a shipwreck campaign. And so they had to figure out how they're going to get off of this island that nobody goes to because it's inaccessible on three coasts and the fourth coast is abutting the Kraken's territorial waters. Right. And so they all give it a wide berth, <coughs> but the Kraken 
being able to affect the weather and conjure storms was pulling ships off course into its territory where it could sink them. And then it was, you know, using its minions because it had lots of Sahagan minions to capture or recover the drowned bodies of the sailors on these vessels and was converting them into sea spawn, which are sort of a type of sea zombie. The ultimate goal of this Kraken was it had been sent through a portal from the plane of water to secure the material plane side of the portal. It came through, found out that the material plane side of that portal had a fortress built up around it that was manned by tritons, and it barely escaped Oh. Coming through the portal. Okay. And so its whole thing is it's been amassing an army to crush the citadel to clear the way to the portal so that it can bring its kin through the portal from the plane of water. I like that. Terrifying. That almost butts into one of those eldritch horrors. I did take a lot of inspiration from the Reapers from Mass Effect with this regard. It is very much like Sovereign. Okay, yes. In that case. Right. It is the one Kraken in the world, and it is the forerunner, it is the harbinger of the other Kraken. I like it. And this makes sense, too, because the Kraken does actually have a 5e appearance as well. Yes, absolutely. The Kraken is one of those monsters that actually improved... As it went from 3rd edition to 5th edition. That's impressive. In 3rd edition, it was basically just a giant squid. Yeah. It was a CR-12 giant squid. That's what I was more familiar with. Again, beefier than a Hydra, but not mythic. The Kraken in 5th edition is a CR-23. Yeah, you're not messing with that. You're looking at Bahamut levels with this. We actually had one in our Monster Madness last year. Yes, we did. It is the unique... Kraken Slarkrethel from the Storm King's Thunder module. Yes. Who is actually a CR 25 because he's also a 20th level wizard. Just because. Because he wasn't scary enough. Because he wasn't scary enough. So they're no longer just a giant squid. So they've got almost like this lizard-like, kind of like a horny toad. Yeah, kind of. That's the kind of appearance that you get from the face. Because it does actually have a face, face. now. I, I was almost thinking something like a lionfish or a reef fish, where it does have uh, yeah. that bony, scaly kind of lots of projections coming off of it. Yeah, it does have that. So they can grapple things with their tentacles. They can throw the things That's that they fun. have grappled with their tentacles. They can yeet. Um, <laughs> they can. And the thing that they yeet takes 1d3 points of damage per 10 feet traveled. And if it collides with another creature, that creature has to make a dex save or it takes that damage too. Right. They are immune to lightning and they can call down lightning storms. Nice. They are crazy smart. Yes. They now have a base intelligence of 22. Oh, so, yes, they are by far the smartest creature that we have covered so far. Yeah, they are smarter than most dragons. They are able to swallow the things that they bite. And then as a legendary action, they are able to create an ink cloud, which creates a 60-foot radius ink cloud that is heavily obscured area for everything but the Kraken. And everything in it has to make a con save or take poison damage. This is for your level 20 players. Do not bring a Kraken to fight anything lower than level 19 because they are not walking away. Uh, well, I mean, we had a Kraken show up near the end of Critical Role Campaign 1. 
Okay, I missed that part. It was the last leg of Keyless Aramente. Okay. Her trip into the plane of water. And that encounter is what killed Vax and made him come back as a rep. Nice. So, yes, Kraken is nothing no. to mess with. Also, in 5th edition, they have layer actions because they can have a layer. And they have regional effects oh, I love it. surrounding their layer. I love it. So, in their layer, it alternates turn by turn, but they bring up a powerful current of water, so you have to make a strength save or you get pushed 60 feet away from the Kraken. Okay. Creatures in the water become vulnerable to lightning damage. Ooh. Because again, we mentioned it could summon a lightning storm. Yes. And the water becomes electrically charged. Even better. So, yeah, you just take 10 points of lightning damage. Just go ahead and take a bath with that toaster. You'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, again, the Kraken in 5th edition took a lot more draconic traits. Even with the regional effects, that is something that you find mostly... I haven't even gotten to the regional effects. I know, but I mean, the fact that it has a regional effect is something that you find with dragons almost exclusively. Oh, no. Powerful vampires have regional effects around their lairs. But yeah, it takes a fairly high CR monster in order to have something that will actually affect the area surrounding it. it. So some of the regional effects that happen around a Kraken's lair. It has the ability to control weather within six miles of its lair at will. Oh. Water elementals will just spawn in the area. Terrifying. They can't leave the water, but they spawn in the area. Okay. And aquatic creatures with an intelligence of two or less are charmed by the Kraken and hostile to outsiders. I like it. So that means like... Sharks. Yeah. (laughs) No, I love this. And really building all of this up, you could have a Kraken in your campaign that your party never even really knows about, especially if they are going through a trade route or they are on potentially an island that's within this Kraken's layer range. You have these unexplained squalls. You have unexplained arrivals of water elementals. You have horrible animal shark attacks, and there's no real explanation for it, and your party just has to deal with it. Eventually, your party might figure out there's a Kraken there. Or as a DM, you could keep that in your pocket for campaigns later on down the road if you want to kind of build up a lore for a region. But you know it's there, and therefore it's going to affect all of these things in a certain way. You use this as building your environment. And so I really like that as a tool. It's more subtle. Yeah, this is how you create, like, a Bermuda Triangle. So Oh, the, yeah, that would be perfect. This area where, you know, there's a lot of superstition about it and you don't want to go into this area because so many ships go into this area and never come back. Right. Yeah, no, and so if anybody did discover the Kraken, they ain't sending no messages. Right, and, you know, you're not going to have survivors. No. They're going to eat everything. Yeah, no, I love this. And so, yeah, this does build up just a region and it does give it a really good flavor. All right. So transitioning from the Kraken into another monster that has sort of a similar feel to it. Okay. The Leviathan. Yes. The Leviathan starts off as a Hebrew monster. It is not from the Hebrew people. It's not specifically Jewish, but from the Hebrew region. It does have several descriptions, but as described, going to be more of your giant monstrous sea serpent. Yes. In many accounts, it is also a multi-headed sea serpent. Right. So the Leviathan itself is female. If you are familiar with biblical text, the behemoth is the male version of the Leviathan. But this large sea serpent also was related to the god Baal. 
I'm pronouncing that correct, and Dagon. So it was able to create storms. It was, again, this thing that would cause coastal calamity, ship calamity. Going back as I was looking at the Leviathan, it does have a Mesopotamian counterpart of the Great Old Queen, Tiamat. Not D&D Tiamat, but Tiamat as a divine goddess who was the primordial creator. She was the goddess of seawater. And when she met with Bahamut, which is the primordial Mesopotamian god of freshwater, when they got together, that is what created all things. And so Tiamat being almost a great old one in her own right as being before creation. Yes. And Bahamut as well. Yeah. Almost, if you want a Greek counterpart, probably on the same level as Terra and Uranus. And Um, maybe Kronos. Uh, see here, yeah, because Oceanus, I think, was a child of Gaia. Yes. So I think, yeah, Gaia and Uranus would be... Yeah, so the parents of the Titans who predated the gods. So again, this is about as old as you can get without summoning, you know, Nartholep and... Nartholep and... Yeah. Yeah. Degoloth. Degoloth? I can never, I can never pronounce the names right. Yeah, and uh, I don't think you're supposed to. You're not, su- no, you're not supposed to. <laughs> and you know, Haster and all of those. Yeah, but again, so if you're going to use this Leviathan, and there are Leviathan-like creatures, I have to double check to see if Leviathan actually Ian would know this better. Pulls up in actual D and D, but again, this is going to be, like I said, your sea monster, that giant, you know, sea snake you see on the edge of old ocean maps and things like this. It's going to be look fairly similar to your Asiatic dragons as well, where it's the long sinuous body it's going to have a breath weapon of either lightning or flooding water it is going to wash out ships it is going to destroy entire seaside ports and settlements and harbors so leviathan does appear in DD. i wasn't able to find it pre-third edition i'm sure it's there i just wasn't able to find it it is in 3.5 it's kind of boring in 3.5 oh that's unfortunate in 3.5 it is literally just a giant effing whale that will come up and ram ships or swamp ships and then it will come back through with its 20 foot wide mouth and scoop up all of the people and corpses that fall off of the ship that's just the critter from pinocchio yeah it it is literally the giant whale from pinocchio that's a little bit boring but okay we'll we'll, we'll give it a pass it is much more interesting in fifth edition yay we got another upgrade so it first appeared in mordenkainen's tome of foes okay it is one of the elder elementals so it is no longer a magical beast it is now an elemental okay this feels correct again going back to the mesopotamian lore yeah it is the primal water elemental whereas the phoenix is the primal fire elemental and the zaratan is the primal earth elemental the Leviathan is the primal water element. Okay, perfect. I'm on board. Um, so it got reprinted in Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse, and they ended up nerfing it a little bit. Uh. But in doing so, they also clarified one of its abilities, which is good because it needed some clarification. It's a siege monster, so it deals double damage to objects and structures. Makes sense. Which include ships. Yes, it would. Um, Because the whole thing about the Leviathan, even in 3rd edition, is that it took offense to ships being out on the water. Yeah, that's its area. Yeah, this is mine, you can't be here. Yeah. And so it would just come up and whap, smack a ship out of the water. How would you feel, you know, people just start walking through your living room floor, you don't need to, who the hell are you? Get out of here. Exactly. So, in addition to being a gargantuan water elemental, it also has water form. Ooh. Which means that it can squeeze through any space of at least one inch. 
That is terrifying. Holy crap. And it can occupy a hostile creature's space. So it can move into your space. It can move into you. Yes. And then re-expand. Well, that's not part of the mechanics, but yes. Yeah. Oh, or just drowned you outright, just yeah. crawl into your I mean, face and be... drowned you. Oh, that's yeah. horrifying. Well, I mean, that would be like the engulf ability of the water elemental. Yeah. You know, you have to make a con save to hold your breath. Well, you can't hold your breath because it's forcing its way in. Well, I would say that your nostrils are smaller than one inch. Okay, yeah. Fair. So as long as you keep your mouth closed. just That is terrifying, though. Oh, yeah. I'm not denying that. <laughs> I kind of want to see. I don't know if there's a volume restriction. I hope to God there's not a volume restriction. I don't know. But one of its abilities is it creates a tidal wave. Okay. A tidal wave that is 250 feet by 250 feet by 50 feet. Ooh. That's your whole map, boys and girls. Yeah. <laughs> basically, it says, I delete everything that way. <laughs> and basically, it's a 250-foot line that is 50 feet wide and 250 feet tall. That's insane. In the old version, it just yeeted that water in that direction, and everything in that 250-foot line just got hit all at once. Okay, I'm going to geek out here, because I am a science geek, and I'm going to geek out. But a gallon of water... Weighs roughly eight 10 pounds. pounds. Yeah, 8 pounds. Yeah, pints a pound the whole world round. That's right. So, how much would that wave just weigh, just pure weight and force of water hitting you? Kilotons. Yes. Megatons. You have a water nuclear weapon. Everybody who wants to like, oh, I can cast Prestidigitation and make a nuclear... No, you can't. But you can cast a tidal wave and make a water nuclear bomb. <laughs> so, the new version knocks the damage down a little bit. Fair enough. Fair but... enough. But... The wave now moves in the line 50 feet around. Oh. And every time it moves, the height drops 50 feet until the height drops to zero and then it dissipates. Okay. That is a good clarification. Yeah. But it is still a 50 foot deep tidal wave. So yet whenever it moves that 50 feet, the 50 feet it covers as it moves is now all within the wave. Oh. It is a 50-foot wide wall of water. water. Nice. And then it will continue on on its next turn, which I would say that if you fail your strength check and get knocked prone by it, you get carried off with oh, it. Oh, absolutely. And so this would be not a lot of fun at all to be in. And on top of it, this is a recharge ability. Oh, that's beautiful. I can't remember off the top of my head if, if, if it's a recharge 6 or if it's a recharge 5-6. Because it is a CR20 monster. Right. So this is the story I'm building up with this. And again, it would take a little bit of DM finagling because, again, with the water shape, there is the question of volume involved. But you have a mad mage or someone who has somehow gotten on the Leviathan's good side. And they have contained the Leviathan into a canteen or even a barrel of water. There is an item for that. There is a legendary magic item for that. Okay. It's called the Iron Flask. Yes. Well done. Beautifully put together. And so what you would have in this case is, I'm going to say the Leviathan being an elder water elemental is from the elemental plane of water, meaning that it is not native to the material plane. Yes. So anyone from the material plane who walks up to the Leviathan on the material plane and has the iron flask has the opportunity 
to magically trap the Leviathan within the Iron Flask if the Leviathan fails its saving throw. This builds it up perfect. And so person takes said Iron Flask either to a desert city to unleash the Leviathan, or maybe this is why Atlantis sunk. I could see that, yeah. Yeah, and there you have set up your campaign. You need to find the Iron Flask and recapture Leviathan because that is why Atlantis is gone because Leviathan destroyed it. Or you set your campaign in Atlantis and they have figured out that somebody has the Leviathan inside the Iron Flask. And they're trying to prevent it. And you have to find the person who has the Iron Flask, get the Iron Flask from them... Get to the plane of water to re-release the Leviathan. Oh, that would be a beautiful story. I love it. You know, without them being able to stop you. Yes. No, that would be a great campaign arc. And that would be a great higher level campaign arc too. You can make it a heist. Yeah. You can make it very noir sort of gumshoe sort of thing. Or you can just make it a straight up like Ocean's Eleven heist. Okay, I like that too. Both of those work. I think, again, we do have some projects in the work we are oh, we're currently working on on a heist, which hopefully should be on our itch store out here uh, by summer, I would hope. Hopefully. Yeah, we're trying to get that polished up. But I could see this being as another scenario we try to write up because this would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that would make a good high-level one-shot. Yeah. Sort of like the Exandria Calamity story arc. Have you I'm not familiar one? with that one. The one that Brennan Lee Mulligan ran? No, I'm not familiar. Oh, that one's amazing. Okay. You have to go watch Oh, it. great. It is the story of how the calamity happened. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and it is so good. Yes, but I would love to, like, summon this Leviathan on an unexpected region and just... Again, this is why my alignment tends to yeah. dip a little lower than most. <laughs> but, I mean, if you wanted to really... Get the Leviathan in really hardcore into your game, you could make it a warlock patron. Yes, that would make perfect sense. And have a maritime warlock. Yeah. And then you would treat it kind of like the way I keep doing critical role references today, but playing into that sort of Ukatoa yeah. from Campaign 2, where Ukatoa was Ford's warlock patron. Yeah. It was a great old one. But I would say that you could probably modify, say, like a... I would say like a Knowledge of the Tome. What's the pack? The Tome Yeah, Pact of the Tome. Yeah, Pact of the Tome. Would be one. But I'm thinking more going along the patron line. Right. I would say probably more like, almost like a genie patron. Okay. Well, I could see this because Leviathan is a water elemental. Yeah. So therefore, again, the Pact with any Warlock is going to be opening more access to the Plains of Water. Probably destroying anything that's going to be polluting or damming up water. Probably breaking down shipping things to keep the water less inhabited. This would absolutely be a character to play in a pirate campaign. Yes, absolutely. I can definitely see near the end of the campaign, you've got your pirate fleet. You've got your pirate armada sailing in. Your warlock is there standing on the prow of the ship as they're sailing towards... That last major fortified port city, the city that has the base for the armada that is the government force that you're opposing, they conjure up using their connection with their patron, and then just all of a sudden, they're coming up in front of them is the Leviathan. I like it. Like, rising up out of the bay in front of this fleet of pirate ships. And that's whenever you, as the DM, get to turn the tables a little bit because 
the Leviathan doesn't care about any of these pirate ships that no. are joining you. So they're all going to become collateral damage. It's going to literally pick those ships up and use them as like shot put. Yeah. And huck them into the city. I've got one to match it. Because we're standing out. To give you a thing of recording, Ian and I are recording face to face, which gives me this perfect idea. You have your Leviathan warlock backed by the Leviathan. I'm not saying that the Kraken isn't a high enough level that it could to possibly be a patron. Oh, I'm sure it would be. And so a Leviathan Warlock versus a Kraken Warlock as or, a point-counterpoint, like a party versus party type thing. Or if we want to really go into mythology, the defender of this port is a Warlock whose patron is the Behemoth. Oh, that would be, yes. So it is the Behemoth on land Versus the Leviathan on the sea. I love it. It is Pokemon Gen 3, Groudon versus Kyogre. <laughs> yes! Yes! <laughs> we've done it! <laughs> I absolutely love this. Yeah, no, you could do... I mean, the Leviathan itself does spark a lot of imagination. And there's a lot you can do with it. The Kraken does spark a lot of imagination, a lot you can do with it. The Hydra, a fun critter, not a star, which I really was expecting it to be when we were drawing up the episode. But again, the Hydra is a great critter. The Hydra has more versatility. The Hydra does have versatility. Because the it is a lower level and they do have more variation on yeah. it. Yeah, and so it's going to pop up more. The Hydra has the face, it has the name recognition. But yeah, some of these other just monstrous sea creatures, oh my god, you can do so much with them. Now there's one other one that we are going to bring up. Yes. That... In a D&D context, is not a sea creature. No. But in a mythological context, came from the sea. Yeah, fair enough. And is French. Oh. <laughs> of course, we are talking about Grandpa Terry himself. Yes. The Tarrasque. <laughs> yes, I love this. So yeah, the Tarrasque is actually French. The lore behind this is a little meh. So the southern area of France, which would be, you know, the northern Mediterranean coast, per lore, it was St. Martha, and they're obviously very Catholic, very Christian. So they said this area was converted by the actual, like, personal friends of Christ that came over. If you know anything, unfortunately, I hate to mention Dan Brown with the, the Da Vinci Code and stuff like that, but the whole concept that the blood of the Grail was the friends and, and potential family of Christ that had fled persecution and settled in this area. This kind of does tie into some of that lore a bit too. But the Tarrasque was this dragon turtleish kind of creature that was huge. And this is one of St. Martha's miracles is that she actually subdued the Tarrasque to kill it. And so I'm going to go ahead and read this description. This description uh, kicks back to 1187. It was fatter than an ox and longer than a horse with a lion's face and head. Teeth as sharp as swords, a horse's mane. Its back is sharp as an axe, bristling and piercing scales. Six feet with bear's claws, a serpent's tail, and a shell on either side like a tortoise. So the Trask really also could have made an appearance in last week's episode talking about our chimeras and our amalgamation creatures. But it was, in lore, this giant, kind of a dragon turtle. It was huge, it was spiny, and it liked eating and killing passersby because it got bored and that's what such creatures do apparently well i mean you can't have a miracle of subduing a creature that is not inherently evil this is true i mean yeah what's the miracle of it? you know what it was there it was a giant fluffy bunny it brought carrots and everyone and everyone got cookies and it was everyone's best friend and saint martha went up and he kicked it in the nose yeah saint martha isn't going to become saint martha for uh, subduing the easter bunny <laughs> yeah probably not <laughs> <laughs> so yes and saint martha 
Intel, she comes up, she sprinkles the trask with holy water, which paralyzes it. She shows it across. She binds it with her girdle. I'm not judging. Just saying kind of kinky. And then the townspeople are I able... I just want to know how big her girdle, girdle was. I know. She, apparently, the, apparently she was thick. <laughs> with three C's. Jeez. I know. And after this, the townspeople were able to come up and slay the Trask with spears and swords after it was restrained and subdued. Right. So we have discussed the Tarask a couple of times on the podcast. I think I can safely say that we are thoroughly unenthused yeah. With the 5th edition to yeah. It is kind of uninspired. It is literally just a melee sack of hit points. It is. It still has magic resistance, although magic resistance has been largely neutered in 5th edition. It just means you get advantage on saving throws against spells. It still has the reflective carapace, so it's unaffected by beam and cone attacks and magic missiles. And whenever one of those attacks would hit it, you roll 1d6, and on a 6, it bounces back towards the caster. Right. Um, and otherwise, it's just a giant sack of hit points. Yeah, really, as monstrous as the Trask is supposed to be, a level 1 character with a fly speed and a bow and arrow, given enough time, could singly drop a Trask. That's extremely disappointing and underwhelming, to, in my opinion. Yes, a first level Aarakocra fighter with a longbow. Yep, that's all it needs. And, you know... Uh, near unlimited supply of arrows. Yeah. <laughs> but still, yeah. You know, that just, yeah. Yeah, that's not what this creature's supposed to be. No. So the 3.5 Tarask, on the other Much hand. Much better. Had six attacks instead of five. Okay. Because it got to make separate attacks with each of its horns. So it got two horn attacks instead of just the one in fifth edition. Because you're swinging your head either way. I can yeah. see that. Its bite would crit on an 18 to 20. I like it. Instead of the AC 25, 676 hit points that it has, which I understand dumbing it down because of bounded accuracy. Right. In third edition, it was AC 35, 858 hit points. Oh, that's just incredible. It had damage reduction 15. Okay. So any weapon that was not at least an epic magic weapon, automatically just 15 damage right off the top. Right. And it had spell resistance 32. Which meant that whenever you made a spell attack against it, see here if I can remember how that works. It was your caster level plus your spell casting modifier. Correct. Plus a d20 roll. Correct. So a 20th level wizard with 20 intelligence would be 25 plus the die roll. Correct. So that means they would have to roll a 7 or higher just to affect the Tarrasque with a spell. Yeah. It had regeneration. It regained 40 hit points around. It could charge once per minute, <laughs> increasing its movement speed to 150 feet. Wow. It was immune to disease. It was immune to energy drain. It was immune to ability damage. And the only way to kill it dead was to reduce it to negative 10 hit points, and then use either the wish or miracle spell, right. which is a ninth level spell, to wish it dead. Yes. Because even the tiniest piece of this thing, if you didn't wish it dead, could eventually regenerate Generate. into another Tarrasque. Yes. The second edition Tarrasque was even worse. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, but yeah. It has fewer hit points because the way that hit points worked Works. in second edition was much different. It had 300 hit points. Okay. Which was 70 hit dice. Sweet Jesus. It had a FACO of negative five. Oh my goodness. Which means that you had to roll a natural 20 in order to hit it. Yes. It still had the six attacks. When it charged, 
its horns did double damage and it did trample damage to anyone in squares that it moved through. Oh. 4d10 trample damage. Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so the Trask just speaks GG. And the fear effect that it had was far more substantial. Creatures with less than three hit dice froze in place with fear. Oh. No save. Oh. Three to six hit dice, they fled in fear. Rightly no so. Save. Rightly so. Seven plus hit dice, you got a save. If you made the save, you did not flee in terror. Okay. Many people would still run away. Yeah. Just, you know, again, discretion is the better part of that. Absolutely. If you see a Tarrasque, you just nope out. Yeah. See here, some other things. It still crits on an 18 to 20, but now it severs limbs whenever it crits on them. Nice. Again, this is a factor of older D&D that I miss that you don't see too much anymore. Both the long maiming injuries, the severing of limbs, things like that. And also, you know, you see it in third edition, you don't see it as much in five, but improved critical ranges. Right. It's hard to do that because just the way they were implemented in third edition. Yeah. But there are ways to expand your critical range. Right. And generally in 3rd edition, it would be a feat you could pick up. And there were certain weapons that were just, like the scimitar had an innately larger crit range. Right. So if you picked up the increased crit range with the scimitar, you were critting on a 17+. plus. I which mean, was kind of nice. I had a build once that crit on a 15+. plus. Oh, very nice. Because also Vorpal weapons yes, would well, improve your critical range. Right. And snickersnack. Yes. But some other things. I'm still not done with oh. the 2nd the edition Tarrasque. Oh, my. It could reattach its own severed body parts by holding the body part to the stump. I like it. Like a troll. <laughs> okay, fair uh, enough. You had to drop it to minus 30 hit points rather than minus 10 hit points and then wish it away. Okay. And while its regeneration was reduced to one hit point per round, it was now also immune to psionics. I could see that. That's fair. So those are some of the crazy things that the Trask, when the Trask was truly a, a, a monster. Yeah. Yeah. This was, you know, the monster that terror embodied. Yes. Yes. This is the thing that if you manage to get to 20th level or even beyond, I think because it went up to 30th level, I think. I believe. Yeah. If you're able to get up there and get these very powerful spells and get this very powerful gear. This was the sort of thing... That was a challenge. Yes. Even absolutely. still, yeah. And in the second edition Monster Manual, they also give some guidance on the things that you can make with the body parts. Oh, okay. Its upper carapace can be treated with a special acid and heated in a furnace. And then as a result, you end up getting 10d10 diamonds of 1000 GP value. Wow. Impressive. And then the hide from the underbelly could be treated and then mixed with its blood and adamantite to create 1d4 shields that have a innate plus 5 enchantment on them. Very nice. And you had to find a very specific high-level dwarven smith yes. in order to get this. I would say probably that would involve going to Mount Celestia to the Halls of Moradin and almost having to get a dwarven god to make that. Fight. I was going to bring that up. So in the later editions of second edition, especially in your epic quest of high range, you actually do in some instances fight deities. Killing a Tarrasque and harvesting the parts for materials and armor would definitely be one of the necessary steps to even hope to accomplish such a task. Yeah, one of my favorite 
long-form Reddit stories talking about somebody who... He was not very well appreciated by his gaming group. He was playing a bard. Okay. I can't remember if this was 2nd edition or 3rd edition, but he was playing a bard, and the party hit 20th level, and they were fighting the Tarask. And he ended up going unconscious during the Tarask fight. And so his DM was rolling for him behind the screen to see whether or not he survived. Okay. The party ended up successfully killing the Tarask. This character, like I said, was a bard. He had taken lots of crafting feats. He basically one-man-kitted his entire party with all of the stuff. And the party assumed he was dead and left him behind. Oh, no. And like I said, he wasn't getting along very well with the other players. Okay, they weren't, so they weren't a... treating his, They weren't treating him well. They weren't treating his character well. Again, and all that. early on um, to second and third edition, bards were very much a support character that were overlooked greatly. Yeah, and they didn't feel like he was, you know, contributing enough. And so they continued on and they ended up starting an epic level campaign where they went to level 30 and he ended up having to roll up a new character for that game. But in secret, his DM had been rolling for him and so several hours later, his bard wakes up. Oh. The party is gone, and he is out here in the wilderness with the corpse of the Tarask. Oh my. And so he starts harvesting the corpse of the Tarask and making himself gear. As you should. As you should. And he ends up having this little solo campaign with the DM in the background. Oh, I love this. He's kitted out in all of this Tarask hide gear with these Tarask bone weapons and stuff. And he goes and he's fighting the gods. And he's actually going and slaying gods and absorbing their power. Oh. And so the epic level campaign, that party, the whole story that they're going through is the gods are starting to disappear. And we don't know what's going on. Oh, I love this. And so they finally get everything together and they're doing all their investigation. And they come through. They're level 30, they come up for their final confrontation, and they come up and they find the bard. Ah, oh, I love it. And they get ready to charge him, and this is where he reveals to them the fact that he had basically, because he made all of their gear, they're still wearing all the gear that he made because yeah. it was the best stuff that they could possibly get. Yeah. There wasn't anything in the books that was better than the stuff he was making. Right. This is where he revealed that... He had been working with the DM the whole time and had put a deactivation word on the oh. gear. Oh, that's evil. I love he it. He says the one word and all of the enchantments on all of their gear disappears. Oh. And he just single-handedly wipes the floor with the entire party. I love it. I'm sure the party hated everybody else, but I love it. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> well done to that DM. Yeah. So that is our cautionary tale to be nice to the other players at the table. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So there's one last monster that we we're going to talk about. Just in passing, Yeah. something else that came up actually comes up in the story of the Lernaean Hydra. Yes, it does. The creature of Carquinos, the crab. Right. Doesn't really do a whole lot. Unfortunately, no. He's like, hey. And then, like, it's, um, oh, what movie is it? It's kind of like Deadpool where you have all these great names and you're like, oh, they're going to be in this movie. And they have, like, a 20-second cameo, if that. Yeah. That's kind of what this creature does. Yeah, so Hera decides to send this giant crab to interfere with Heracles whenever he goes to fight the Hydra. And Heracles just sort of stomps it and kills it. Yeah. 
the end. This does become the constellation Cancer, however. So all of our, uh, what is it, June and July babies are Cancers? I think. I'm Gemini, which is early June, so. Early June, then yeah, so it's Gemini, Cancer, and then Leo. So yeah, it's our June and July babies. So yeah, Carquinos got the equivalent of a participation trophy. Like, oh, you got squished, so we're going to make you into a constellation. Yeah, well, I mean, Hera liked him, and fair enough. Yeah. I mean, who really wants to have their head stepped on by Heracles? I mean, eh, yeah. Yeah. So there are monstrous crabs, crabs in yeah. 3.5. You're saying there's some bad cases of crabs? Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and they scaled them up all the way to Colossal. Right. But they were literally just the regular crab scaled up. up. Yeah. They didn't have anything special going for them. That said, a crab by itself, I mean, especially if you get a very large crab, I mean, you take something like a king crab, if you're ever eating crab legs or something, those shells are kind of hard to get through. A lot of people need the special nutcracker tools and stuff like that. So yeah. if this thing is healthy and hale and in a bad mood, it's going to take a bit to pierce that armor. Those claws are going to do some heavy work on some squishy flesh. Yeah, and I think the damage for the colossal one was like 8d4 plus something right and yeah it was big yeah it was big a lot of them too i think didn't we have one with our uh march madness last year i'm glad you mentioned that because we're gonna go back into theros for a second excellent for one of the mythic monsters tromocratus oh my tromocratus is kind of a crab kind of a lobster he's kind of almost a little bit like the chull Okay. Those sorts of monsters. He's got a carapace. He's got like a lobster tail kind of thing going. He's got a great big pinchy pinchy claw on one side and he's got tentacles on the other side. He's big. He's mean. He has, I think, an AC of 22 and 400 hit points. He, he did underwhelmingly during the thing. I think he got put up against Tiamat. Though, brass so. dragon. Brass dragon. Okay, yeah. The brass Great worm, I think. There was definitely a mismatch between abilities, especially with fly speeds and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and the fact that it was able to grapple him and he wasn't able to do a whole heck of a lot. Yeah. So whenever he is reduced to zero hit points, that's when his mythic actions kick in. So instead of dying, his carapace cracks open, revealing his four hearts, which each have AC 22 and 100 hit points. Oh my. And so you have to kill all four of his hearts in order to kill him. He's still fighting you full effect at this whole right. time. This totally sounds like an NES boss fight. Yes. It absolutely does. Oh, I've killed the boss. No, you just dropped the armor. Now you have to hit the four glowing globes and destroy each one while he's hammering. He's flashing red and hitting you faster and harder now. Yeah. And because of the way that his mythic action works, if he gets to take a short or long rest, his carapace heals up. Yeah. And so he goes back to normal. Yeah. So there's no, we dropped him to zero hit points, we're going to go take a breather, and then come back and finish him. No, you're not. You're in for the whole ride. Or you can just, you know, find Heracles and have him step on his back, and I guess that does it too. And one of the things that he's able to do is, once he hits his mythic actions, uh, cover himself in coral, which deals damage to creatures within, I think, 10 feet of him. Right. And gives him a plus two AC. Yeah, it's kind of like a Thorn's Aura, almost. Yeah, so that bumps his AC up to 24. That's a really hard hit. <laughs> yeah, for I mean, he is a CR25 monster. It makes sense. And it is a mythic action because he's a mythical monster. Right. So it should be really hard Fair to, enough. to drop him. But yeah, he's big and he's mean. Yeah. And he does. This definitely would be, you know, your BBEG for the end of a campaign. I would not put him up against the Leviathan or the Kraken, but definitely an honorable mention. Definitely scarier than the Hydra. But yeah, no, I mean, if you like crab critters, this is definitely one to throw on the table. Yeah, I think... Surf I crab legs that night. <laughs> Unless somebody has a shellfish Fish allergy, allergy yeah. don't. We don't condone giving your players anaphylaxis. 
but personally, I think that Tromocratus is probably a bit more inspired by the Clash of the Titans Kraken. Yeah. He does have that feel. Being in Mythic Odysseys of Theros, there are lots of things from Mythic Odysseys of Theros that draw from that sort of mythology. Yeah. That sort of pop mythology that yeah. we got. You know, with stuff like the Hercules show and the Xena Warrior Princess and the animated Hercules. And... I don't remember the animated. Oh, oh, the Disney one. Yeah, the Disney, okay, the Disney one. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have never watched any of it except for whatever clips pop up. Right. I wasn't a huge fan of Disney. I've heard that's one I do need to sit down and actually observe. But All right. I think that pretty well does it. Yeah, that wraps us up. This was a fun go. We've gone through mainland Europe mostly, well, a little bit of the Middle East. We've come across the ocean, so pretty soon we're setting foot in the New World. Yeah, I think we may end up doing an episode on monsters that petrify. Yes. We had talked about doing that. We might do that as we are doing research on our North American cryptids because that is something that we're going to have to do a bit more research on. There's less readily available about it. Right. And we want to make sure that we aren't stepping into too many taboos. Yeah, we are trying to be respectful of cultures. And there are some that I definitely want to address where the cultures themselves believe that talking about them or generating fear about them give them more strength. And so that's why a lot of times they will use an alternate name or alternate spelling or descriptions of such. Or just not, not talk about them Broaching them at all. Right. And if that's the case, we do want to respect those cultures because this is where they are coming from. Yeah. There's one that we mentioned whenever we had Jack yeah. on talking about Vecna and talking about some of the other stuff that he's been doing. Right. Some of the native cryptids that, that are fascinating. That are fascinating. And, and from our region. And I love the story behind them, but you're not supposed to talk about them. You know, and even stuff that has made it into pop culture. Right. But that we aren't going to get into because we're trying to respect cultures, cultural, you know, taboo on talking about certain cryptids. Yes. And that one cryptid in particular, the one that starts with a W, came up in that... Sounds kind of like a fast food chain. We'll, we'll stop there. Yeah. And Jack took the time to explain to us that, no, we don't talk about that one. Right. Because, as James was saying, talking about them or referencing them is believed to give them more power. But in the case of that one is also, if you say its name, you draw its attention yeah, to you. Much like with older European myth, where if you would mention a wolf or a bear, and again, that's why a lot of creatures were named otherwise, because you didn't want to say these words because they would summon these creatures. Yeah. So that was the, uh, as we mentioned, I think it was with the lycanthrope episode yeah. or possibly the one where we're talking about the Nixies. Where we're talking about the difference between Ulfr as uh -huh. a wolf and Varg as a wolf. Yes. Varg was the non-taboo name. Right. Also talking about the hellhounds, I believe. Possibly. Because it was the Barghest. Okay. Could have been a bear ghost instead of a mountain ghost. But yeah, so that is something that it's going to take us a little bit of time to do the research on that. And so we may put a filler episode or two in between while we're working on But that. we are looking forward to it. We are going to try to cover it as much as we can because as much as we do very much want to respect native lore, there is a wonderful trove of stories and monsters and abilities that would be very interesting. And those cultures should be brought up to be appreciated as well. And so there is a balance of appreciating them respectfully and respecting, obviously, the taboo of those cultures also. So I think that 
pretty well wraps up. Yep. Again, if you want to send us an email, you can do that under taste at gmail.com. Send us a direct message through Twitter at UCT Homebrew or come join us on Discord and send us direct messages in Discord. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. If you send us words, we'll send you words back. Yeah, wordiness. Yes. <laughs> so stay safe, everyone, and we will see you again in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe, and we'll see you then.